J. Hudson Taylor was a gifted medical student in London, England, when God called him to serve as a missionary in China. It was a very costly call for Hudson Taylor. When his ship finally set sail from Liverpool, England in September of 1853, Taylor left behind the prospect of wealth and fame as a doctor. He sailed away that autumn day from family and friends. He relinquished the security of his homeland. In the mid-19th century, English missionaries to China expected never to return again. Yet despite the cost, Hudson Taylor's heart was alive with the prospect of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ in this very needy land of China. He had counted the cost. He knew God had called him to this task, and he knew that God was with him. And so it was with great courage and joy in his heart that Hudson endured a nearly six-month journey at sea arriving off the coast of Shanghai in March of 1854. Six months at sea. Makes you sick to say it. Can you imagine? And I cannot tell you, begin to tell you, what he endured to prepare for this journey. And as the shoreline comes into sight then, here is this man who has already endured immense trial in preparation for this mission. He has left everything to serve Jesus Christ. He has years of arduous preparation behind him. And now here he stands on the deck of this ship after six months at sea, and he can hardly believe what his ears and his eyes are telling him. There on the shore, a military battle is raging in Shanghai. There's these guys by the name of the Red Turbans. They weren't happy people, and they weren't very safe. And there were forty to 50,000 imperial troops bombing them and not really caring who they hit in the process. The only safe place for Hudson Taylor to go is to the foreign compound. But while he was on the ship, the exchange rate changed dramatically, and he could not afford a place in that compound. He's on the outside where the shells are falling. Well, he carries in his pocket some letters of introduction to people he's never met. But he hopes that they will help him to survive this ordeal. He finds, he, he searches out the first person and presents the letter, and he is informed that the man died two months ago. Letter number two. He runs and tries to find that person and finds that the man had just left for America. Hudson Taylor had sacrificed everything to serve Jesus Christ. He was following God's call upon his life. He was a man of high commitment and he had been called to this specific task. Yet here he is on the first day of his mission and terrifying circumstances stand directly in the way of fulfilling God's call upon his life. He is not proclaiming eternal life to Chinese. He is running from death. Now this is a fairly dramatic account, but it is not all that unusual, is it? 
How often we find ourselves submitting to do exactly what God wants us to do, yet providence stacks circumstances right in the path. It would seem that if God calls me to do something, I should be able to count on Him lining up circumstances to help me honor His will. That is certainly what Moses expected as he initiated deliverance of Israel from Egyptian bondage. We've read in chapter 4 that things seem to be going fairly well as we come to the end of chapter 4 and verse 29 where Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and they worshipped. It would seem that if God calls you to do something, we should be able to count on Him lining up circumstances to help us honor His will. And that seems to be falling in place here for Moses. He has submitted to the will of God. He has returned to Egypt. He has spoken to the elders of Israel. They are now on his side. It's time to go to Pharaoh. He knows that Pharaoh will resist, chapter 4 and verse 12. He's not expecting for a red carpet to be laid out and for Pharaoh to welcome him into his presence. He knows this will be a difficult task. However, God's called him to this mission, and so with confidence in God's power, he enters into Pharaoh's court. And we cheer as we come to chapter 5 and verse 1. Yes, Moses and Aaron confront Pharaoh, the one who oppresses and subjects the Israelite people in cruel bondage. Chapter 5 and verse 1, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. Here's a shepherd and a slave. And they enter the most powerful throne room on earth. They stand before Pharaoh in all of his splendor and submit an explosive demand. Now you notice here in the text in verse 1, this is not their demand, this is God's demand. They speak for the Lord. You notice the text type there. In verse 1, this is what the Lord says, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Remember that name. That's the name Yahweh. That is the one revealed to Moses in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Remember when Moses kept arguing with God, he never wanted to use this name. He wanted to use the more general Adonai as he addresses God. But this is the God who is with us, Yahweh God. We speak in His name. He has declared to you, Pharaoh, let the people of Israel go. And notice that He refers to, them as, he refers to Him as the God of Israel. This is the one who is God's firstborn son, chapter 4 and verse 22. So the message is direct and it is clear. Pharaoh is to release the people of God into the desert where they will hold a festival to the glory of God. That is a religious celebration, ranging from solemn sacrifice to joyous feasting. Now, God's ultimate plan, we understand, is for total liberation. This really exercises a lot of commentators as they look through this. I don't think that it really needs to be that difficult. 
God chooses not to shock Pharaoh with the radical demand of complete liberation. Kind of issues a somewhat reasonable request. In fact, ancient manuscripts have been found indicating that slaves were at times granted leave to go offer sacrifice to their God. And so God is simply asking for this normal type of situation with Israel as a nation. If we were going to go to a local school and say that we wanted to minister there, I don't think you probably would sit down before the principal and say, what we would like to do is to come into your school and preach salvation from sin in Jesus Christ such that students will turn from the darkness by which you are blinded even at the cost of alienating their families. And with all of their hearts, they will serve the reigning Christ who is seated, ready to judge the living and the dead. And going into all the world, they will then make disciples of all nations, bringing them to this radical obedience to Jesus Christ. The guy would be on the phone before you were done, you know, calling somebody with a, with, with a wagon to take you away. What would you say? You would go in there and you'd tell them the truth. We would like to start a Bible study in this school. You don't fill in all of the details. I think that's all that Pharaoh and, or that Moses and Aaron are doing here before Pharaoh. I think they're just going in and saying, will you grant us a festival? God has more in mind. He has total liberation in mind. But he tests Pharaoh with this simple, reasonable command. Pharaoh will have none of it. Verse 2, Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Now, I seriously doubt that Pharaoh had never heard of the God of Israel. The Israelites have been living in his land for four centuries. They know of the God, he knows of the God of Israel. I think he's not saying, I have never heard of this God before, and I do not know if he even exists. What Pharaoh is saying is, I do not, I could not care less who he is. In Pharaoh's mind, the most powerful nations serve the most powerful gods. Pharaoh was not about to heed the ridiculous demand of a God who could no, do no better for his people than slavery. So Pharaoh is saying to Moses and Aaron, Who in the world does Yahweh think he is that I should serve him? If you write in your Bible, note this verse. Star it, underline it, do something, because this is a hinge on which the book of Exodus turns from this point. Pharaoh is going to discover exactly who God is. This book of Scripture is written in part to teach us that no one defies God and gets by with it. Who is the Lord? Stay tuned, chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12. He will show you who he is. There is a serious warning for us here, and I'd like to just pause at this point and for us to focus on this. If you've gathered here with us today and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, You are choosing to put yourself above the Lord. And in one sense, you are saying with your life and with your own spirit, who is the Lord that I should obey him? You need to understand as the Bible is laid out, as this revelation is given to us, 
Coming to acknowledge Christ as Savior is not an option. It is a command from God. You must come to Him in saving faith. You must place, place your confidence in His provision for sin and salvation. And if you do not, then you stand with Pharaoh saying, Who is the Lord to tell me what to do with my life? The Word of God reveals very clearly that it's not your life. It is a gift from God. Do not stand before the living God and say, Who is the Lord? There are those of us who have come to saving faith in Christ, at least have professed that salvation. And I may speak to some here who are living in known sin. You know that you are walking against the purposes of God. Do you realize how close you are coming to saying, Who is the Lord that I should obey Him? No one ever gets away with such defiance of the living God. No one. It's one of the motivations that I have for working with teens in our church. Because I think there's no group in our church more susceptible to crossing the line of defying the living God than our young people. That's for a practical reason. Adults who have defied the living God don't come to church. They make that decision and they're not here. But for our teens, for our young people in this church, as they are growing up, there is that danger in front of us, before us. That some may pass through our midst who do not want to honor God. And it is my burden of heart to stand in the way and say, do not defy the living God. Do not cross that line of saying to God, who do you think you are to tell me what to do? Don't do it. I plead with you, and I plead with our teens on Wednesday nights often. Never defy the living God. Who does God think he is to tell me what to do, Pharaoh says. No, I will not let Israel go. Those are dangerous words. And graciously, Moses and Aaron diplomatically clarify the message of God to Pharaoh in verse 3. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. The burning bush. Now let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or He will strike us with plagues or with the sword. Remember that, as one has called it, that Motel 6 incident back in chapter 4? Moses learned that mysterious night that you do not mess with God's Word. When God speaks, He means business. Chapter 4, verse 24. And Moses simply shares that insight here with Pharaoh. Listen, Pharaoh, you have got to understand this about God. God has told us to observe a festival in the desert. If we do not obey, we and you, Pharaoh, are in serious danger. God's word is never optional. It is never negotiable. We must obey God. Verse 4, But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Notice it's their work. He lumps them in with the slaves. 
Then Pharaoh said, verse 5, Look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. So Moses faithfully delivers God's word to Pharaoh. He expects resistance, 421. He's under no delusion that this is going to be an easy mission, but what happens next literally blows him away. This is not what's supposed to happen. Yes! Moses and Aaron walk into Pharaoh's court. But no, Pharaoh oppresses Israel more. Verse 6. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and the foremen in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw. This is in direct response to Moses and Aaron's demand. Pharaoh issues this new order. In the past, the Egyptians had supplied the Israelites with straw, which was used to make bricks. Very quickly here, it's, they would take the mud off of the banks of the Nile, different uh, mixtures of clay and sand. And as they looked at the mixture of the mud, they would mix with it uh, some type of reed or papyrus or herbs or thorns or vegetables. They would chop up uh, these, these uh, types of things and, then, and mix them into the mud. And the humic acid of the decaying plants would serve as a cement to the bricks. You can see them today. There's still these bricks that are, have been made. They still have the straw hanging out of them that have been taken from ancient Egypt. These bricks would then be put into molds and then set out in the, in the Egyptian sun and baked with the temperatures often rising above 100 degrees. It would bake these bricks very hard. And all of this straw would be provided by the Egyptians for the Israelites. So as you can imagine, it was back-breaking work to make these bricks, digging in the ground and forming them and setting them out in the sun and mixing them together in this scorching heat of the Egyptian sun, all of this adding to their misery, many of the slaves dying young because of a failure of their internal organs in the tremendous heat and with no sense that they, uh, no uh, proper drink given to them. But now the Israelites must additionally forage for their own straw. And the problem is exacerbated, verse 8, as we see there, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. This is why they are crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the men so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. It is clear that this new policy is in direct response to the request of Moses and Aaron. And in utter defiance of God, Pharaoh calls God's words a lie. Verse 9. A lie. Pharaoh says, The only reason these worthless slaves have come to me is that they have too much time to dream and to talk and to plan. Let's run them into the ground and they won't have time to think about such foolishness. Pharaoh's order descends the chain of command and it is enforced. Verse 10, Then the slave drivers and the foremen went out and said to the people, This is what Pharaoh says, I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. You notice a the contrast there, verse 10 and verse 1. 
Moses and Aaron come in before Moses and say, This is what the Lord says. The slave drivers and the foremen of Israel stand out from Pharaoh's palace and say, This is what Pharaoh says. So what we see here again is the, is the battle between God and Pharaoh. Pharaoh has asserted his word over God's word. God's word intends to lift the burden of slavery from his people. Pharaoh's word intends to further oppress them. God says, go, worship me. Pharaoh says, go, forage for straw. Something is going to have to give here as Pharaoh sets himself up against God. Verse 12, so in response, the people scatter all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. We have no explanation here, but apparently when the Egyptians would cut down the plants for the brick making, they would supply the plant. But now they're saying, hey, you're not taking our plants, don't take our reeds, don't take our vegetables, you can take whatever is left after we have harvested So there they are out in the fields and along the banks of the Nile picking up just the stubble, just what's left after the plant has been cut down and that's what they're trying to get enough together to mix with the clay in order to bake these bricks. In verse 13, the slave drivers kept pressing them saying, complete the work required of you for each day just as when you had straw. It is the slave driver's job to enforce Pharaoh's order and they do. And when the Israelites inevitably fall short, the slave drivers take vengeance upon the foremen themselves. Now these are Israelite men who have risen up to leadership among Israel, and it's these men that the slave drivers hit. Verse 14, the Israelite foremen appointed by Pharaoh's slave drivers were beaten and were asked, why didn't you meet your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? Beaten? They're beaten. This is not how things are supposed to work. God sent Moses to deliver the Israelites from slavery, and now they are being enslaved and oppressed even more and beaten on top of it. And I wonder, as the whips cut through the flesh of the backs of these foremen, what they must have thought. It certainly does not look like Moses is leading any great deliverance here. Things have gone from bad to worse. But as the text unfolds, we come to another yes. Perhaps this will do it. The Israelites confront Pharaoh. They're so desperate, they go right into his throne room and speak with him. Verse 15, then the Israelite foreman went out and appealed to Pharaoh. That word appealed should be translated cried out. It's a parallel to verse 8 where he criticizes them for crying out for their suffering. And they hear indeed cry out to Pharaoh in their suffering. Verse 15, middle of the verse, why have you treated your servants this way? They say, your servants are given no straw, yet we are told make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. They, they, they speak of themselves as servants over and over again here to Pharaoh. Hey, we are your servants. We understand that we are your servants, but nobody's providing straw for us here. We're being beaten for what other people used to do and provide for us. This isn't right, Pharaoh. I mean, yes, he's their oppressor. But this is completely out of line. This is insanity. They find no sympathy from Pharaoh. 
Our yes devolves into another no. Verse 17, Pharaoh said, lazy, that's what you are, lazy. That is why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. God interprets the cries of the people as motivated by oppression. Pharaoh interprets the cries of the people as motivated by laziness. Therefore, he will give them nothing they demand, but they must give him everything that he demands. It is oppression of the worst sort. Verse 19, the Israelite foremen realized they were in trouble when they were told, you are not to reduce the number of bricks required of you for each day. These are the men with the bleeding backs. They realize that the order is firm. Pharaoh was not just trying to get their attention. Pharaoh meant business. These are the men with the bleeding backs who walk out of Pharaoh's palace, and there is this horrifying aura of discouragement that overwhelms them. We are in the midst of evil. We're in bad shape. And this leads to another horrible no, and that is that the Israelites now confront Moses. Verse 20, when they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, may the Lord look upon you and judge you. You have made us a stench to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. You've perhaps been in that spot, maybe we all have, somebody comes up to you and really confronts you and lets you have it. And there's sort of a tingling on the skin. And the heart drops. And this great confusion sets in. This isn't the way it was supposed to work. These were the people that had believed us. We showed them the signs. The leaders of Israel, what's happening here? These are the men that have been beaten. These are the men that have to return to their people and to convey the bad news that new policy would remain in force. And so they lash out at Moses and Aaron. Judge Pharaoh? God should judge you. Look what you've done to us. Everything is going wrong with this mission. The mission to deliver Israel has resulted in further oppression. And now the Israelites are blaming Moses. So Pharaoh lashes out at the foreman, the foreman lash out at Moses and Aaron, and now Moses lashes out at God. Verse 22, Moses returned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you brought trouble upon this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble upon this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. These are honest, heart-wrenching words. If they weren't honest, God could remove Moses right then and there. But he talks to him. Moses says very honestly, God, this makes no sense at all. We have done our job and confronted and have confronted Pharaoh. But you have not followed through on your part. 
You're supposed to deliver Israel. Remember this? Notice how he talks to God. Do you notice the type set? Verse 22. O Lord, small letters, O-R-D. O Adonai. When he walks into Pharaoh's court, he says, Yahweh has spoken. But here Moses is again, avoiding that word. The I am who is with you. Adonai. Lord, why? Then the Lord said to Moses, chapter 6, verse 1, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. With a mighty hand, I will come down upon Pharaoh, and with a mighty hand, he will send Israel away. Moses, you have seen what Pharaoh has done to you. Now stand back and watch out what I will do to Pharaoh. The simple point is that God is not done yet. God is not done yet. Under the pressure of the circumstances, Moses has drawn a hasty conclusion. God is failing to deliver. God is not showing up. He's not doing his job. He's not fulfilling his promise. This is Moses' conclusion. God, what are you doing? Let me tell you what you're not doing. But God is still setting up the pieces on the board. And he's going to play this thing such that Israel will know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it is God alone who crushes Pharaoh. Moses has seen that his word alone will not persuade Pharaoh, but only lead to more oppression. But God is not done yet. So there's two major questions that rise out of this text of Scripture. The first question comes from the lips of the unbelieving Pharaoh. Who does God think he is to tell me what to do? And this narrative serves warning to never, ever cross that line. Now as we gather here today as God's people, we come with sins and we come with our weaknesses and we struggle in the spiritual battle to do what is right and to honor the Word of God. May we struggle together. May we have understanding for one another and lift one another up and encourage each other in the things of God to do what is right and to obey His Word. There is a struggle against sin that we will endure to the end of our days in this life. But there is a line where you defy God. There's a line that we cross in defying the absolute sovereign right of God to tell us exactly what to do no matter how difficult, He has that right. He is the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, and He will be honored as such somewhere in time or eternity. God contends for His glory with omnipotent strength, and anyone found contending against that power will not get away with it. This is what God is teaching us over and over again in His Word he is a father of love and compassion and draws us to himself. But there is a line. You don't defy the living God. Or you will pay 
a serious price. I don't know if I speak to anyone today. I hope not. But perhaps I speak to someone who is flirting with that line today. You're saying, you know what? Down in the depths of my heart, I really don't care what God says. And I really don't see why I've got to listen to what He says about my life. Maybe some of it's getting all muddled up in the fact that you're saying, oh, that's just other people's interpretation of what God says. And you begin to rework the words of God. So that you do obey what you want to obey and dismiss what you don't want to hear. We've got to understand the danger we're playing with there. Don't cross the line of defying the living God. It will not end well for you if you do. The second question that arises out of this text, not only Pharaoh's, who is the Lord that I should obey him, but Moses' question, not who is God, but where is God? He knew that frustrating, discouraging times were ahead. And he knew also that frustrating and discouraging sense that he was doing everything God had called him to do and his world was falling apart right in front of him. The first part he understood. Pharaoh is not going to be an easy nut to crack. But the second, he cannot perceive. We do not expect our lives to sail along smoothly as Christians. We expect trial and we expect difficulty in this fallen world. But it gets so discouraging sometimes when circumstances directly block the path of obedience. Some of you could probably stand up and testify right now and say, here it is with me. Here's the blockage on the road. I don't understand. I don't know all the circumstances and all the stories that are there. But perhaps it's a wife who determines before God she is going to honor her husband as the head of her home and he immediately heads down a wrong path. I do what God says. I obey his word. And here is this major roadblock right in the way. Why does God allow this? Where is he? Family determines to start tithing their income and worship of God, and they run headlong into the worst financial challenges of their life. Where is God? A single decides to honor God and stop dating an unsaved friend, and the only other person in whom he or she is interested begins a serious relationship with someone else the next day. You take a stand for God at work or school and no one even listens. No one cares. And there's this discouraging cloud that comes over you. And you say, why does it go this way? You can fill in the stories and the accounts. We know this experience. Maybe not as dramatically as Moses, but we understand this situation. We are doing what God calls us to do, and he puts right in front of us a roadblock that keeps us from fulfilling his will. Why does God not come through and make the way clear? I can't answer that question fully and absolutely and authoritatively. Because there is much that God does that I do not understand and cannot ever understand. 
But I think we can venture a few ideas even out of the text that is before us and mixing it together with other New Testament thoughts. And the first is this. God often uses such circumstances to show us it is not our obedience that wins the day, but God's power. I think were Moses to walk in before Pharaoh to do the signs that God had given him, to issue the word, and Pharaoh, yes, he resists, but everything works greatly, just real easily. He walks outside and the Israelites are all cheering him and celebrating this one who's come in to confront Pharaoh, and eventually everything just falls into place. I think there would be a tremendous danger for everyone to think it was Moses who pulled it off. But God orchestrates the board such that Moses walks in, does his part, and it all falls apart right before him. God graciously keeps us from ever thinking that we are the ones who pull off his will alone. He reminds us over and over again through the circumstances of life that in the end, he will win the battle. I think secondly that we need to realize that our circumstances are secondary. So God's bringing them into the way, into the path, in order for us to see the power of God that He alone is going to get over this hurdle. And secondly, we realize in this that our circumstances are secondary. We need to keep this in mind. What is the primary issue as the text of Exodus unfolds? And what is the primary issue as your life unfolds? It is not our circumstances. It is the glory of God. This is what this whole thing is about down here. To elevate His honor and His glory. If He has led you on a path of obedience, walk it faithfully and trust His hand. That message was preached earlier this morning. In the text of Scripture that was read, in the songs that were sung, this message was repeated over and over again. Go forward in obedience and trust His hand. Did you hear it? Amazingly parallel. 1 Peter 4 and verse 19. I hadn't thought of it before the service today. But 1 Peter 4 and verse 19, as Pastor Pratt read this, you see how it fits. So then, and I'm just he's summarizing here the whole passage, but 1 Peter 4 19, so then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. That's what we learn in all this. It's not about the circumstances. It's about submitting ourselves to our Creator's hand and trusting Him and continuing to do what is right. We read it. We sang it in the songs. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free, says God, and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mightest find thy all in me. Not in you, not in your obedience, and not in your circumstances. If you love God, and if He has called you to be His child, He is going to make sure that you never fall in love with this world. You may, He will act. You may be tempted, that temptation will be there. But God will work to make sure that His people do not ultimately fall in love with this world. 
And so he will continue to stack circumstances in the path of obedience such that we never get too terribly comfortable down here. Because we cannot forget that we don't live for Egypt. We live for glory land. We live for the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our home. That is our place. And the circumstances down here should keep reminding us of that. I think one of the most dangerous places on earth to be for a Christian is in a place where everything's always going just right. God brings the circumstances of life against us at times to remind us this isn't our home. And His glory is all important. So we need to walk in confidence. God will act at just the right time. We need to trust Him. He is Yahweh. He is always there. And if you think it is hard to walk on the path of obedience in the face of the stiff challenges that providence places there, try Pharaoh's path. The way of the transgressor is hard. It will be hard in the end. You defy the living God, you walk in the darkness, and you are going to trip. And your fall is going to be terrifying. Someday, somewhere. I don't say that to scare anybody from anything. I say that because I believe with all of my heart that that is the reality of this world. We are going to stand before the living God, and it is the most dangerous thing that we could ever do to defy Him. Our call is to love Him and to see Him for who He is. And so we must remember, thirdly, in all of this, that God is a jealous God. He is jealous for the love of His people because He is God. Parents, we can understand this just a little bit. When we know that we are jealous for the love of our children, I hope in a right way. Sometimes it's twisted and wrong. But there is a right kind of jealousy that says there is no one else who is going to come in and steal away the love, my love for my children. There is no one who is going to come in and teach them what is wrong while I stand idly by. I love them because I am their father. I am their mother. And so you say... I am jealous for them that they would know who I am and that they would know how I love them and that they would know that following what I say will lead to righteousness. Ideally, that is what a Christian parent says and thinks. And that is how God thinks. He is jealous and He is a God of wrath and anger because He really is God. And so when someone comes to a place of defying him, he stands up and says no. Just like a parent would do as a child runs toward the edge of a cliff with no sense of any danger. He says, stop. And if you don't stop, he will tackle you. He'll rub your face in the dirt if he has to in that tackle. But he will keep you from that edge. For the obedient, the path is lined 
with troubles. But for the obedient, the path is also lined with the glories of God. And that will bring the greatest joy in the end. So keep living, keep serving, keep walking, keep obeying, and know that there is glory on the road ahead. Whatever roadblock God puts on the way, there's glory at the end. Do you believe that? Do you trust it? Do you live in light of that truth? Don't say to God, who are you to tell me what to do? Never, ever say that. Submit to his purposes, trust his hand, and walk to glory. He'll be there. He won't show up when you think he should, but he'll show up at precisely the right times. And your life will work together with his purposes for the joy of both God and you. Let's bow for prayer. Father, these texts of Scripture permit us to walk into your presence. And I know that with human speech, there can be a great failing. And I pray that there's no one who has a sense that you are a God who you are not. We bow before you and we have great wonder in our hearts to consider the glories that are yours. The great and loving purposes that you work out for your people. We don't understand in a hundred percent or thoroughly and fully why it is that you line up the roadblocks on the path of obedience. But we thank you for the reminder that we must trust you and never defy you that you are our Father, our Lord, and that we are your children, and that we can trust you to always do what is right. But Father, I pray in a word of confession, and I believe I represent this people as I pray, that we sometimes fall in love with circumstances. We fall in love with this world. We want things to go our way and for everything to line up and just be easy in the way we want it to be. May we remember this is not our home. May we serve you faithfully and diligently to your glory and honor. And thank you for the promises that glory awaits on the road ahead. May we trust you in the midst of trials and heartaches and disappointments, opposition and difficulty. May we trust you and do what is right to the very end so that your name is glorified in us and we realize the very purpose of our creation. Thank you for this reminder. Thank you for your greatness. We rejoice in it. We celebrate it. We exalt your majesty. And thank you for the work of our Lord Jesus Christ in our behalf, in whose name we pray. Amen.